All right, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, continue in our series, Chosen in Christ. This is part three in our election series, Unconditional Election. And the title this week is called, God Chose Some People. Some might emphasize that differently. God chose some people. But I wanted to emphasize some And we'll see what that means as we go along here. We've been looking at reading as an introductory text, and we'll eventually get to this text and look at some specifics in it. I've been using this for, I used it for the introduction, which was just kind of preview about what we were going to be talking about. Last week we looked at the attributes of God in relation to unconditional election. And really that was just a preview of some of the attributes we'd be looking at. And then this week, we'll use this text again, and God chose some people, and my intention is to show that he didn't choose everybody. And uh, let me say, there'll be some weeks that um, we'll be taking a break from the series, and I'll preach some other things. So I'm not going to do 20, 25 consecutive messages on election. We'll take a break sometimes, and I can't say when that'll be. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints. Now, I emphasize that that is important to see that Paul is writing to believers, saints. They're sanctified. They're set up, that word means they're set apart from those who are not saints. Just like the intention today is talking about God elected some, others he has not. Saints that are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you. And, and and Paul here, he speaks peace and grace only to saints. That's what we're supposed to do. Only to saints do we speak grace and peace to. And from God, our, in, in reference to calling someone our brother and sister in Christ, in other words. From God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us, us being the saints, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, according as he hath chosen us, the saints, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, in which he has made us accepted in the beloved, in Christ. Now, last week we looked at that overview of the attributes of God and just talked about what we'll be emphasizing. We mentioned that. The attribute of God's sovereignty will be emphasized probably more than any of his attributes in this series. So that's the one we're going to stress mainly. We mentioned in the in both messages this fact. And I'm going to state it again, but I'm going to say something different about it. That's related directly to our subtitle that God elected some people. The statement I made was, all people who will ever be saved have been chosen by God to be saved. 
made that statement, and that's a fact. Now, some people might think, well, that's good enough. Well, you know what? It's not because there are some people. You would think that would be enough. But there's some people that say, well, that's obvious that God did that because uh, he chose everybody to be saved. Do you see how the statement I made, they take it and they can put inside their statement. The statement again is, all people who will ever be saved have been chosen by God to be saved. Those that would even disagree with our view of election would say, well, yeah, that's obvious. Right? Because they say God chose to save everybody. And those that are saved are included in that everybody. So we have to cut through that and prove otherwise. People do the same thing with the atonement, right? We could say, well, Christ died for the elect. And they say, oh, of course, you died for everybody. That includes the elect. So we have to cut through that. That's why the word alone or only, these words, the five solas, for example, you know. And even, even then, even then, people take it, water it down and destroy the word alone or only and they, they make it be out something else. We've talked about that before. But people don't want to answer biblically is, is part of the problem. And that's what we start out in the series. We talked about it's important that the series be geared biblically. We should always hold ourselves accountable that way. Keep reminding ourselves of that. All answers, all points, all details in this teaching must be, and any other teaching we do here, must be from the word of God only as our only authority. Now, I had mentioned people don't want to answer biblically. Why is that? Several reasons. I just named four here. People love to give their opinion, which is tainted with bias, right? They might would rather choose their church confession of faith, their written church documents, confession of faith concerning who God chose or who didn't God choose or why God chose who he chose. They might lean on their confession of faith. There's nothing wrong with confessions of faith as long as they're biblical. They might lean on their humanistic philosophy. That doesn't seem right to me. I feel it in my gut that something's not lining up. You ever hear people talk that way? Something wrong with that guy. I can't put my finger on it. <laughs> Shut up till you can put your finger on it. We're not into mysticism. We don't judge by outward appearance. We judge by truth. So philosophy, man's philosophy should take a back seat and we should, our minds should be renewed in the word of God to have biblical philosophy. Philosophy just means the way you think. And another thing that might creep in is tradition. And tradition could take in those first three things that I mentioned. And there are some religions, there are a lot of religions, first of all, we know that. But there are some who really kind of zero in on this, this thing of election. And they say, we are God's chosen people. Jehovah's Witnesses, the 144,000, right? They're worried about all the time not being included in that 
I don't know if some jump out, some jump in. I don't know that forty. I don't know how that is, how that works. But you know, they're popular for holding that. There's a hundred and forty-four thousand chosen people, and I hope I'm getting in. The Mormons have some type of a a view too on like they're the people of God, and you know they tied in with Joseph Smith, and it goes back to places. You know this this covenant is extended to America, you know, and there's some kind of prophecy involved. When we looked at worship, we talked about things and places, and they fall into that where a lot of movements are, a lot of movements are like, you know, we're the lost tribe. We're, the cho- we're part of the chosen, right? There's, uh, in the 90s, when I was uh, involved in some, got distracted and got very politically involved in a lot of different a big spectrum of politics in the quote-unquote patriot movement ran into some people that were involved in the identity movement, which were kind of white supremacist kind of, where they were they were like a part of a lost tribe, you know, and they thought they were the chosen. And then later on, I, I had heard about some type of a black Hebrew-Israel movement same thing, just opposite end of the spectrum. It had to do with they're one of the lost tribes. And so they have these different racial, you know, they tied it into race. And then, of course, the most famous is the Jews. The Old Testament Jews with their national or bloodline doctrine. And you see Christ battling them throughout the, the Gospels. We're of our father Abraham. You know, we're tight with Moses and his writings, you know. And we saw the, the, the error of that creep into these different churches, the Church of Galatia. They brought those things back in to do circumcision and dietary laws and special days. And it's still going on today. Still, the residue from that permeates our United States culture. And you've got dispensationalism and Zionism and unconditional support of Israel. Unsecured loans just to take our money because you're God's chosen people. We've got to be friendly to you. You know, it's crept into the White House. So all kind of different views on this thing of election. But usually if you bring it up in a, in a crowd that doesn't know much at all, I think the, the last one I mentioned, their mind goes to, well, Israel's God's chosen people. And we'll deal with, we're going to deal with part of that in this series and show how that in the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel was chosen for a time and for a purpose. And how did it, that is a type of, the church in the New Testament. So we'll look at that. But that idea is in society about the idea of God has a chosen people. And so the, the, the fact, too, that religious, especially religious people, would push back against the biblical truth of, of what we're teaching, unconditional election in Christ, what will they use in their pushback? Free will, right? That's the, it's not just election, it's an unconditional election what we're going to teach. They push back with free will. They would say it's unfair, right? And they would take texts and misrepresent the text. And they would say that we're misrepresenting the text. So through this series, we're going to look at the idea of free will. We're going to look at this idea of what's fair and what's unfair. God's no respecter of persons, right? That's who he is. We'll deal with that. And then we'll look at some texts that they would take and say that it says this. 
and we'll show that it's not saying that. And this, this whole problem is just more evidence of, of lack of sound biblical theology, uh, especially in seminaries. Somebody the other day asked me about a seminary. They're always asking me about seminaries and sending me links. Can you check this out, see what you think about it? And I'm thinking, not again. Somebody's getting ready to get reeled in and they're going to lose money. So a lot of times I'll ask people, first of all, why do you want to go? Do you want that piece of paper to put on the wall so you can be proud of the paper? Or are you trying to get a job where you're going to make money by that thing on the wall, the paper on the wall? But seminaries are ridiculous when it comes to the distinctions of, of what we teach about concerning the doctrines of grace. Seminaries, to get more people in, you have to trim all that down so you can get more a bigger crowd, right? And they put out people, they, they manufacture people that keep coming out to negatively affect others in congregations who read their books or who surf the internet for articles about theological doctrinal information. So how long has that been going on? Anybody care to guess? Very long time. Before I was born, before any of you were born. So one of the many goals in this series is to prove that the use of biblical distinctions will help us and I'm going to make I'm going to run this through the statement again, the original statement. I'm going to add to it. It will the distinctions that we will teach during this series will prove this. All who are saved were chosen to be saved by God. Now, here's the addition. And all who were chosen to be saved by God will be saved. You see, I added a distinction. So if God chose everybody, then everybody's going to be saved. But he didn't. Which means those who were not chosen by God will not be saved. Now what's a shame is today we have to, we have to be that distinct. That's what it's come down to. We have to make statements to fence in our points so that they can't be misunderstood. Because it's, it's bad out there. There's a famine in the land where it comes to this truth. Now, I'm going to go through three things right here. And I'll just bear with me here and let's think about these things. We're going to just kind of talk about what we're going to be weeding out as we go along. Here's a fact. Not all people throughout history will be saved. Not all will believe. Not all will have faith. In other words, not all will end up in heaven. That's a fact. What is the proof of that? This is easy to prove. We see people dying in unbelief. You, you read about judgment in the scripture. And you see those scenes of judgment where people will be condemned and will be cast into hell. That's easy. That's an easy one to clean up. Now, there is a group called universalists that are really out there. I know a couple of people that used to be these, and they what they teach is that all men will be saved in the end. I think that's easy to see from Scripture. That's not the case. So we're not going to spend any time on that. In other words, I think that's a kind of an easy mess to clean up. Some old preacher one time said, it only takes a second to spill a glass of milk, but it 
takes a long time to clean it up. Right? I think I said that last week. Especially if you've got that shag carpet, you know, gets into the fibers. You know what I'm saying. Secondly, fact. God has, and this is what the bulk of the series is going to be about right here. God has, in his sovereignty, chosen some to be saved in the manner in which mercy and grace has been made in making that choice in Christ. Because of Christ, conditioned on Christ for Christ's sake. So there is the statement about some, and that's what we're going to spend the bulk of the whole series on. We'll give all the biblical, not all, but a lot of biblical, doctrinal, theological support for that one right there. And then toward the end, we're going to talk about what God has done with the rest of the people, which is very, very offensive to some people. These would be called the non-elect. Some people would use the phrase reprobate. What has God done with them? Some whom he has not chosen. And when we look at that toward the end, we'll see God's sovereignty. We'll see what that should cause in us, humility. And then we'll show also how that is involved in the relationship between evangelism. Knowing that there are some out there that are not chosen of God. How does that tie in with how we evangelize? So we'll be seeing some of that. So back a second to the original objection in the introduction. And some say that God chose everybody. Many would say that, and you've heard this before, you might have believed it before. God has chosen everybody to be saved, and it's up to you to use your free will to accept or reject the offer of salvation. That's the most popular view out there. They follow it up with this. God loves everybody. And the how and why is usually missing from that statement. They haven't even thought how and why. They just accept it as a fact. They say Christ died for everybody. And what's missing there is what did his death actually accomplish? If that's the case, what did his death actually accomplish? And then thirdly, they say that God desires and is trying to save everybody. And then they don't see the implications of what that God what that God is, what it makes him look like in not getting that done. So we'll look at all those too. So the biblical doctrine of uh, unconditional election, it cuts through all that, all those objections. And when we look at it, we need to see and remember that it is Christ-centered and gospel-focused. I'm telling you the truth. I don't want to do this unless we do that. I would much rather do something else. But we have to do it that way. We must do it that way. Because there are some, including me, before I was converted, talked about unconditional election. For four years, four and a half years, I was unconverted. And I would argue unconditional election. And I didn't know Christ. I didn't know the gospel. And now I see the blind spots, what I was missing in a gospel way, in reference to Christ in this teaching. So we must look at it this way and keep our focus on it just for the value of the study. I don't want to study anything unless I can see Christ. It's about who God is. It's about his glory. So with that in mind, with God's glory in mind, we'll bring arguments, biblical arguments against. I'm just going to toss out some titles of some names of groups of people. And I know this doesn't 
cover everything, but we'll be combating the false view of Arminians, Pelagians, semi-Pelagians, Catholic, and all other all other conditional views of election that God has chosen people unto salvation. We'll battle all those. We'll show what they hold to and show why we disagree with them from the scripture. We'll briefly spend some time on what is called uh, Amaraldianism, hypothetical universalism. Th these are the four-point Calvinists. They would be the ones that would take out the L in the middle of TULIP, the acronym TULIP. In other words, limited atonement. They would take that out. So we'll deal with those people. And we'll show the error there. Now, what's weird about those people, that they will say that God did choose a specific limited amount of people to save in election. But yet Christ went ahead and died for those who God did not choose. So that there could be this potential there still somehow, and it's kind of weird, that they could be saved if somehow they came to Christ. I don't know how that's going to happen. But we'll, we'll talk about some of that. And then, toward the end, we'll spend a bit more time on the five-pointer, which we here claim to be five-pointers. We believe that all the doctrines of grace. But these, I believe, these people who twist this in a weird way, and I'll get to it here in a second, are the most dangerous and most inconsistent. They've developed a system of ideas that says, in some sense, God loves everybody. In some sense, we can say that Christ died for everybody. And in some sense, we could say that God wants to save all people. And these people claim to fit in under the umbrella of five-pointers. Those that believe TULIP, the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of sovereign grace, all these, you know, there's different synonyms we could use. And in my opinion, these are the most dangerous. And these are probably, whenever it comes to Calvinism or whatever you want to call it, sovereign grace, these are the majority of people. Back in the 90s, I was involved in a sovereign grace directory where... I had an advantage where I, I met a bunch of people. I put together this directory before the internet came along, really, before the internet exploded. And I made a hard copy of a Sovereign Grace directory. And I think I did six editions. Every year it grew and grew and grew until the internet, internet came and I saw, uh, this is a waste of time. Internet is, is a better use of means to do it. But the condition for people being in the directory it was free for them to be in the directory if they sent me their material. So it was on all their newsletters. I got CDs, tapes, and all that. So I got a good exposure to all kinds of five-point Calvinists. And I got to see a wide array, broad spectrum of what people held to and their differences and stuff. And it was uh, an educational process for me. And I'm, I'm glad that I went through it so I could see all this. And uh, which reminds me, a friend of mine, maybe a year or two after I was converted, 
brought up something about common grace and the free offer, and he explained what it was. I said, that just sounds like Arminianism to me. And he said, wow, brother, that's very astute. I thought, it's common sense. That, I mean, it didn't take much thinking for me to just say, that's Arminianism. I came out of that. He said, no, there are actually five pointers that hold tenaciously to that. And he said, I'm pretty sure the majority of them do. I had a sinking feel in my belly. I thought, what? Are you serious? So, and then I did that directory. And then I started to see, yeah, he's right. And, you know, I'm not a statistician. I would guess 85 to 90% of all five pointers don't believe what we believe. They believe this trimming this down where God loves all, Christ died for all, and God wants to save all in some sense. So we're in the minority of the minority. It's nothing to be proud of. I mean, it's just where we're at. You know, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't try to adjust my things so I can be some elite minority. You know, that's, that's nothing. Uh, it's not fun to begin with, you know. It's already narrow. It's not like, okay, let's, let's, be, uh, let's just treat everybody terrible so we can just be the smallest group of people and act like we're persecuted or something. That's not the situation, but I think you'll see clearer as we go along. To me, the more I saw that, it was, it was a burden to me. I felt uh, sorrow and, and, and isolation as a result, of course, because I'm not going to compromise on what the scripture teaches. So these five pointers, they'll say this. In some sense, God loves all, Christ died for all, and God wants to save all. They'll say that. And they'll even say, you can say that to your hearers that you're preaching to. They'll, they'll say indiscriminately, you can look out to people you evangelize and you can say, God loves you and Christ died for you. Here's a video. It's a question and answer. R.C. Sproul at a conference at his church has Dr. Sinclair Ferguson up on the stage. And there are people in the audience that get the microphone. They're asking questions one by one. And a guy who I know him, he used to be my Facebook friend. He asked a question to Sinclair Ferguson about this issue. You said in one of your books or one of your messages, and he gave, this guy was pretty accurate about documenting when he said it, where he said it, how he said it. He said, you could say this to your hearers that God loves you and Christ died for you. He went on and he got kind of preachy. He said some real good stuff. Started naming some four-pointers. Uh, John Preston, some Puritan that promoted this hypothetical universalism and stuff. And he went on and on. And R.C.'s like, Dr. Ferguson, what do you got to say? He said, well, you know, I said that um, 25 years ago. And I wouldn't change a word of it. And I thought, oh, my belly hurt all over again. And he went on to explain why he thought he could say that, and it was ridiculous to me. And R.C. Sproul, let it be said, didn't correct him. I've seen question and answer session after question and answer session at these big conferences asking the same questions about the atonement. I've seen Paul Washer hedge on it when there's six other people up there on the panel. And the questioner says, you got anything to add to this? No. I got my books have to sell. I can't say anything about this. I can't say universal atonement's a false gospel. I got to sell books, man. I got to be invited to the next conference, right? 
it's connected to what we're talking about here. It's connected to this, this issue that starts with the love of God and unconditional election. So they say that you can even tell your hearers that. Some will even go further and say that you should not say to your hearers that are not believers yet, shouldn't say anything about the sovereignty of God in salvation. Don't say anything about election, predestination. Hold, withhold that. You'll, you'll mess them up. I know a church that I used to be associated with in Indiana that has gone that route. And some friends of mine came out of it, which I'm glad of. But you start to see that. As time goes on, you see people hedge on those points. Water it down. Evil men shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. For money, for fame, for power, for fear, or all the above. Do you think that I can say something that's true about the sovereignty of God and run off one of his elect? That's ridiculous. People are not saved through psychological tricks. And I'm not ashamed of God's sovereignty. You know what? God's not either. That's why he put it in here. That's why he put it in the book. You think you can run off an elect? <laughs> you're stronger than God. That's what you're implying, right? So we'll look at the common grace free offer thing toward the end and tie it into evangelism. So in looking at some of the words in scripture, I mentioned some a few weeks back. We will look at where the scripture draws evidence to show what God did concerning choosing or electing a specific people to save. And the fact that he did it before the world began. And he did it in an unconditional fashion, not conditioned on them, but conditioned on Christ. And then the rest of that that follows will be the effect of election. So, you know, you're talking about election. What's the big deal about election? Is there effect to it or is it just some kind of high doctrine that you're just toying with? No, there's an effect to it. That's why we're, that's why we're dealing with it. It's part of salvation. We'll talk more about that. Even today, there's some, some wording that we'll look at. Now, one final note in the introduction. Uh, let me say this. As pastor of this church, or as I do writing articles for the website, or I do say I do little video projects trying to teach things on video, no matter who they're for, or a personal conversation with people that I have at work or whatever. I, I just can't say, hey, trust me on this. I can't do that. I think a lot of you that I talked to, I, I told you up front, I said, don't trust me, right? Scripture says, beware of false prophets. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. I know when um, I was talking to Eric, I don't know how long ago, early on, I think I said that. I think I said, uh, don't trust what I say. Question what I say. God's preachers and teachers uh, or those that are just witnessing should not be afraid to be questioned. I can't make anybody believe anything. It's what does God say? What's he say about himself? Not just that. What does God mean when he says something about himself? So then it's, okay, that's a different story. I'm not just reading biblical words to your ears. 
now I have the task, the responsibility, the chore, and it's not a game to actually interpret what's being read. Now, I better know what I'm saying. And, and you, when you guys talk to other people, you better know what you're saying. And if you get to a part where you're not sure of, say, you know what, I'm not sure of this. I, I think it means this. Don't take me 100%. No, that's what you ought to say if you don't know for sure. But this thing of meaning, it's one thing to see English words, which everybody here speaks English, in black and white. It says what it says. What does it mean? We should know what it means. What does that mean? It means we have an understanding, right? It has to do with an interpretation. There, there's not a buffet of interpretations. They all can't be right. So all we can do is lay out the truth, and then we say, you know, that you believe what you want. You know, it doesn't upset me when I deal with new people. It doesn't upset me that they don't believe. I would prefer that they believe. I want them to understand what I'm saying. Then if they disagree, I know they disagree because they understood what I said. And now they're denying the truth of the scripture. Right. See the difference. But what have preachers done? What have certain preachers done? They've trimmed it down so they can get more people to to believe what they believe. I baptized 10 more this week. You watch their wallet grow. Or they have bragging rights when somebody says the very first question, of course, what preach? How many you got? How many members you got? So they can say, you know, got a bunch. We busted out the back wall. We're expanding. Come on down. You get the picture. I can't just say, just trust me. I'm not going to. There's a guy I've been dealing with uh, for a while. He somehow came to me, he asked me questions and stuff, and he's at the point now, and it's been a while, he's at the point now where he told the leadership of his church, I can't be a leader anymore, can't be a part of the leadership, because I disagree with what you're saying. This is a five-point Calvinist Reformed Baptist church. He says, I don't feel right even being a part of the leadership, and he's probably going to just leave the whole place. And he's been asking me a lot of questions, and it's like, you know, here's my answer, but you're gonna, you do what you want to do. I know I would have been out of there long, but I would have been out of there a long time ago because I'm, I've been stuck in his position before. And I understand when you're tied with people that you care about for years, you got, you're used to things. And when you walk away from something, there's people in there, you know. And then a lot of times you feel like, well, I'm going to stick around and try to reform that group before I leave. Maybe pull a few out with me as I'm going. Usually doesn't work. Hopefully it'll work down there, but he got to the point where he's even questioning himself. And he has to answer those questions for himself. If he thinks, am I deceived? If he's thinking that to himself, you have to answer that question. It implies that I'm part of deceiving him, right? So there it goes back. It's your responsibility to judge me. If what I'm saying is in the scripture, I'm telling you, beware of false prophets. Am I a false prophet according to the scripture? If I am, don't listen to me. But if they are, get away from them. This is, this is not hard. It's a thinking thing, right? We've talked about it before. It's a thinking thing. So this is why I press transparency in ministry. Encourage questions. 
and I fight against mysticism and supposed paradox. All right, let's look at a few words here. Mark 13. The guy I was talking about, I think he's going in the right direction. And I, and I think he'll come here someday to visit. He's from out of state. And um, I'm not going to say who he is, but I really like the guy. I enjoy talking with him. He's come a long way in a short period of time. And there's, there's all kind of people out there that I'm dealing with. It's exciting to me when I see people move away from garbage. What I'm doing here, I'm just going to name some words that are involved in this study. The first one is elect. It's used 20 times in, in the scripture. Now, when I get to certain words, I'm going to limit them only to the Old, uh, only to the New Testament. Okay? And I'll tell you when we get there. But here's the word elect. It's used 20 times. And in Mark 13, verse 20, I'm, I'm just starting the idea just to show this word's in the Bible. Because some people just flat out deny this idea of election or God choosing. And here in these few verses here, it's used a few times and even a secondary word. We'll see in the first verse, verse 20. And unless the Lord had shortened the days, no flesh would be saved. But for whose sake? The elect's sake. That's a group of people. Comma, whom he has chosen. There's the synonym. The elect are the chosen of God. This is easy. This is basic. He has shortened the days. Verse 21. And then if anyone shall say to you, lo, here is Christ, or lo, there, do not believe him. Because false prophets, false Christs will arise and will give miraculous signs and wonders in order to seduce if possible, even who? The elect, the chosen. It's not possible for them to be deceived. Verse 23, but take heed. Behold, I have told you all things beforehand. This is Christ speaking. He is the prophet. He's telling them ahead of time. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers in the heavens shall be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he shall send his angels and shall gather his elect his chosen people from the four winds from the end of the earth and in the end of heaven. So there's some just easy evidence to see there. There is a group of people called the elect and even the other word using his chosen is a synonym that helped define who the elect are. Now you would think that this implies that there are some others who are not elect. We'll eventually see some verses here. I'm going to read these other two to save time for you to turn. You're familiar with these, I believe. Romans 8.33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
there's the word elect again. Here in a gospel context, it's talking about the charge of sin being imputed to the elect. In the context, nobody can do this. Nobody can charge the elect with sin because God is the only one that does this charging thing. And he's already charged sins to Christ for the elect. It says it's God who justifies. What's that imply? The non-elect will not be justified, right? The non-elect will not be justified. Here's one, uh, Titus 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant, very first verse of the, of the book. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. In the acknowledging of the truth, which is according to godliness. Turn to 1 Peter 5, verse 13. Here's the word elected. Now, there were, there were if I remember right, there were 20 verses that said elect. We just read a couple, we read a few. The word elected, which would be past tense, in uh, 1 Peter 5, 13. The church that is at, that is at Babylon, elected together with you, salutes you. And so does Marcus, my son. So there are individuals that are elected individually together. He's saying, here's a group of elect people, right? Go to Romans 9. That word elected is only used one time, and we just read it. Romans 9, let's look at the word, and, and we're going to come back later in the series and I want to dive into Romans 9 and hang out there, of course. But the word election, we're going to see that now. It's used six times. Romans 9 and verse 11. Remember when you're in a discussion with a, a conditionalist, Armenian, semi-Pelagian, Pelagian, dial 911. Romans 911, right? It's a good one. For the children not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, but, notice this, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. That's a load right there. It was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger. It is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Verse 11 is tied to verse 13, which we'll look at in great detail later in another message. But election is tied to love. Non-election is tied with what happened with Esau, hatred. Turn to chapter 11 of Romans. It's going to use the word election, and we're going to add another word, remnant. Remnant is used twice in the New Testament. So this verse or these three verses here I'm going to read, Romans 11, 5 through 7, both words are used here in the context. Now, the context, you know, Paul, who is a Hebrew, he said, has God cast away his people that are, that are like me, that are the same bloodline? He said, no, he hasn't. He, he's got me still. And, it, and there's other Hebrew people that believe the gospel. So he hasn't, he hasn't broken his promise that he would save some. The promise was never to save all. 
So in that context, that's where he says this. He says, even so, at this present time, there is a remnant. That means a small piece among a bigger piece. I think of carpet every time I read this. I don't know if there's other types of remnants. I don't know, but that's the first thing I think of. with my hillbilly brain. Even at this present time, there's a remnant according to what? The election of, notice, election of grace. I'm not going on a limb here. I think we can we can easily say that there's not an election of works. How can I do that? The next verse. But if by grace, we just talked about the election of grace. If election's by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. You've canceled out grace. If you add works to grace, grace is made void. You've just canceled it out. You write a check to me for a million dollars and you write void across it. I can't make it work. It's messed up. With the, anything to do with salvation, when you add works, meritorious works or conditions to it, you've just, you've just jumped off the train, right? That's a false gospel. And in the middle of the verse there, verse 6, it says, but if it's by works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, works is no more work. So, so Paul's saying, look, it's either one of two things. It's either by grace alone or works alone. Don't add works to grace and don't add grace to works. Now, we know works isn't going to work. I mean, he spent a bajillion chapters in the scripture proving no man can be justified by the flesh, by the works, by the law, on and on and on. So then it's grace. All right, you've got grace. Let's talk about grace. People want to add works. No, that's the point. It's a constant battle to keep works out of grace for salvation. Even in election. And that's what it's talking about in the context here. Verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained that which it seeks for, but election obtained it. God's choice made the difference. And the rest were hardened. The rest who were not elected were hardened. God did it. So we'll see more detail on that later. Now the word chosen, there's 12 uses in the, in the New Testament. One of them is in our text in Ephesians. According as he hath chosen us in him, that's, that's the use. So we won't go over that one. Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, this phrase is used 10 times in the New Testament. His people is used. I think we're very familiar with this here. Matthew 1.21. I remember when I used to, a long time ago, send Christmas cards, which I don't anymore. Don't send me any because I don't even see them. I'm not going to send you one back. But I use this verse in Christmas cards years ago. Verse 21. The angel concerning uh, says this concerning Mary, the virgin. And she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For, in other words, because, here's why. <laughs> this is pretty important, because this has to do with his name. We can't mess with this. 
This has to do with who God is. This is naming who Christ is. And if you want to mess this up, you know what you're doing? You're using the Lord's name in vain. Simple as that. Because he shall save his people from their sins. So an example here in this verse right here implies that there are other people who are not his people. The phrase, he shall save his people from their sins. It implies there are other people that are not his people. How do we know that? Because they're not saved from their sins, right? I mean, that is really, really easy. But you know how many people mess that up? Most. Most. So soon, you know, people will say, well, let's try to work around that. How do we get around that? See how we can get around that. Because we need to get around that. It's talking about the Jews, right? His people. That's who, that's, that's the bloodline Christ came through, right? They'll try that route too. That's where this dispensational thing is all popular. That God has the, their God's chosen people, the Jews, right? They'll go that route to try to affect sovereign grace. They can't stand it. Well, we're going to look at that. We'll look at that along the way. Uh, turn to John 10, the word sheep. Now, I, I didn't have the time to count 41 times it's used in the New Testament just by itself. Now, I didn't go through and say, all right, this many has to do with just animals alone and not typology or, you know, illustrations. And then this many have to do with salvation. I didn't do that. You can do that on your own. But 41 usages, not every single one dealing with salvation or election, but the ones I've given here an example are John 10, 26 through 28. But you did not believe. He's talking to some unbelievers. Some Jewish religious people. That were, I can't remember if they were scribes and Pharisees. I can't remember. But, that, you know, those types. If, if it wasn't them, it was those that believed their doctrine. I'm at a disadvantage because I copied and pasted this. But you did not believe because. Here's the reason. You are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, I'm going to give you a distinction, he says. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. There's three things. They hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. You're not it. It goes on, I give to them, my sheep, eternal life, and they shall never perish. And not anybody else, not anybody, really I shouldn't have said not anybody else, not even them. Because <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. Some people say, well, I can do it myself. Not anyone shall pluck them out of my hand. So there is the word sheep used in the context. Now we can look at some other things later about certain facts like sheep are God's chosen and goats are the non-elect. 
we'll see some texts that show that. We can talk about how that sheep don't turn into goats and goats don't turn into sheep. We'll look at all that. But I stop there at the choosing words, the election words. And we're also going to get into uh, predestination, foreknowledge, foreordination, all those words, foreordaining, all those words too. Are, we can't cover everything in one message, but just want to give you some samples. But I think, I think easily, what we have seen today, easily, God has chosen some people and not all. We've even read some verses that says he chose some and the rest, they're definitely separate. And he's done something different and it doesn't look very positive either, right? Said to the ones that he hardened them. He chose some and he hardened the rest. We know in Romans 9, that might be the, the clearest of all the chapters. And we'll look at that and we'll even be open and honest and transparent enough to take objections. And I know what some of them are and we'll disprove those objections too. Do you see the, the vital importance of, first of all, this is tied, this is, this is part of salvation. And there is constant attack in every direction of everything that has to do with salvation. They're trying to, to tear it down. We have to get a grip on this. We have to see all the ins and outs of this doctrine. And we have to be sure about what we believe about it. We have to know. Let's expand our spiritual minds here. Let's, let's, be, let's handle this thing and get familiar with it so that we can give an answer. So that we can, from generation to generation, keep passing this truth down. Show the proper interpretation of all these texts here. And leave a footprint in, in each generation of the truth. Because if we don't, if you don't think this is a big deal, the next generation is, they're not going to hear. They're not going to, they didn't say it was a big deal. You know, you that have kids or grandkids, you know, after you pass away, if they say, well, they didn't make a big deal about this, what are they going to think? I guess we don't have to make a big deal about it. That's what happens. You can look back a couple hundred years and look at this theologian in this one particular church. And you can see two generations and now they're teaching something that's totally watered down and the place should be burned down. You know, it's ridiculous. I don't want that. Any questions or comments?